It's premiere week on The Kelly Clarkson Show. And we've got music's biggest stars all week long. Performances by John Legend, Little Big Town, Machine Gun Kelly, and Common. And appearances by Usher, Josh Groban, Queen Latifah, and more. Get ready, y'all. The Kelly Clarkson Show. All new season two. Weekdays at two on NBC4. I am your host, K-Town, and you're listening to seven disturbing chronicle stories of scary, paranormal, and horror tales. Murder is a sad fact of life. It happens every day of every year, and it's always tragic. All the same, Homicides committed on Halloween tend to be more striking, especially when the perpetrator remains unidentified and the crime unsolved. Halloween and horror may go hand in hand, but the horror is supposed to be inconsequential, a brief engagement with dread followed by the safety and security of your home. That was not the case for the following 10 victims all of whom were murdered on October the 31st or after leaving Halloween celebrations. And as of right now, their deaths still remain unsolved. First up, we have the murder of Roland DeLoach and Joseph Smith. A family's life was turned upside down on Halloween night in 2016. Roland DeLoach, 41, and Joseph Smith, 28, resided in Sanford, Florida, and cared for their mother, Barbara, who lived with them. Joseph was an aspiring rapper and was two weeks away from releasing his first album. At around 9 p.m., an unidentified assailant wearing a mask entered the brother's home. The mask intruder shot Joseph. Roland, who had just returned from work, heard the shot and ran to his family's aid. The gunman simply shot him next. Their mother was spared, though the intruder made her drop to her knees and beg for her life. Joseph died in the house, and Roland died in a nearby hospital. No one knew who had killed the brothers. A promising development appeared to emerge on November the 11th. That day, the Sanford police named a man called Dante James as a person of interest. The day after Halloween, James, along with his girlfriend, Sabetta Seal had been arrested on weapons charges. They were released on bond, after which James cut his GPS anklet and fled. He was arrested on November the 22nd. Investigators determined that James couldn't have been the murderer, but he and Seal were believed to have information about the killings. However, they wouldn't cooperate with the police. Joseph's girlfriend is believed to know something about the incident but she wouldn't cooperate either. Despite a $5,000 reward for information, their murders still remain unsolved. Next, we have the murder of Sylvia Salonis. On October the 31st, 1989, 30-year-old Sylvia Salonis was working at her small corner grocery store in Galveston, Texas. She was certainly aware of the possibility of her business being robbed. She kept both a machete and a pistol below the cash register. However, 
whoever came in the store that day must not have sent off any red flags for Sylvia never touched neither. Perhaps it was someone she knew. Regardless, this unidentified person stabbed Sylvia in her heart, ending her life. There were no indications that Sylvia made any attempt to fight back, and she never triggered the silent alarm. The murderer did that himself when he pried the register open to take the cash inside. He fled, leaving the knife at the scene before the police arrived. They blocked off the area and began to collect evidence. Despite their efforts and the interviewing of around 20 suspects, investigators never found Sylvia's killer. To make matters worse, the cold case became all the more so in 2008, after much of the evidence was lost to Hurricane Ike. In 2018, however, the case received renewed attention when reports hit the news that a critical piece of evidence had, in fact, survived. It was a videotape made by police of the crime scene soon after Sylvia was murdered. It shows the crime scene in detail, including both the murder weapon and footprints left by the killer, and now stands as the best hope for solving the murder. Some fingerprints were preserved as well, but as of now, this Halloween murder still remains unsolved. Next, we have the murder of Anthony Sabelle. Halloween night in 2013 was a violent one in New York City. Three men were shot to death in Brooklyn, and two others suffered non-fatal gunshot wounds in Queens. One of the Brooklyn killings received a bit more attention than the others that of Anthony Sabell. At around 8.30 p.m., Anthony, age 19, was walking on East 31st Street in the Farragut neighborhood when a man wearing a ghost face mask immediately recognizable from the Scream movies fired upon him. A bullet struck Anthony in the head and the ghost face mask perpetrator ran off. Anthony was taken to the Kings County Hospital where he died. Despite initial media attention due to the murderer dressing as a horror movie villain, there was little subsequent reporting on the case. It may be that the unidentified perpetrator that wore the scream mask got away with murder. The murder of Derek Grain. At the end of October 1980, Derek Grain has spent two months in Bristol, England, temporarily working for British aerospace in nearby Flinton. Though he was known to enjoy quite a few drinks when he'd go out in town, Derek wasn't noted for one to get into fights. That fact made his fate all the more shocking to those who knew him. On the evening of October the 30th, Derek went to two clubs, first Vicky's and then Curves, both of which were on Park Street. At around 2 a.m. on October the 31st, he left Curves presumably to return to his room at the Unicorn Hotel. However, he chose to walk down Brandon Hill Lane, a move which would later perplex detectives. Whatever his intentions, Derek never returned to the hotel. Later that morning, a nurse discovered him dead in a pool of his own blood on Brandon Hill, lying face down. A sand-filled traffic cone was found 240 feet away. Derek had been beaten with this unusual murder weapon, and the attacker 
or attackers apparently appeared to have repeatedly kicked his body as it laid on the ground. The motive was believed to have been robbery. Derek's bank cards were scattered around the crime scene, and some money had been stolen from his pockets. It's possible that the murderer saw Derek dropping large amounts of cash at the club and followed him. Aside from the murder weapon, another clue was present in the form of a bloody footprint on the back of Derek's shirt. Leads soon surfaced. Several witnesses came forward to describe three or four men attacking a lone victim near Clifton Hill at around 3 a.m. A large Jaguar sports car, normally seen in the area, was also reported to have been around. However, the leads didn't pan out, and advances in forensics over the years haven't managed to shed any light on the murder. Analysis of the traffic cone has provided little useful information. In 2009, the pockets of Derek's clothes were scoured in the hope of finding DNA left by whoever killed him. But this too proved fruitless, and the case remains unsolved. Next, we have the murder of Norton Gregory. Kirkland, Washington was a quiet place in the 1950s. On a road to nearby Redmond, which today is the much busier Northeast 70th Street, stood a small gas station and convenience store. It had been opened by Norton Gregory in 1952. Norton lived a few blocks away with his wife, Helen, and their six children. On October the 31st, however, in 1957, a customer, Mrs. O'Farrell, entered the store to find Norton lying on the floor. He had been shot in the head five times. Amazingly, he was still clinging to life at that point, though he would ultimately succumb to his injuries. Mrs. O'Farrell called the King County Sheriff's Office and officers soon arrived. She never set foot in the store again. The coroner later found that of the five gunshot wounds Norton took, three were fired at close range. It was speculated that perhaps he had come across someone stealing money from the cash register, and the thief panicked and started shooting. Rumors flew about people with grudges or that Norton had gambling debts, but these were never substantiated. To the amazement of many, his wife Helen reopened the store only a few weeks after Norton's death, and she decided to run it herself. She later married a sheriff's deputy. In 1958, it seemed for a time that the case was going to be solved. A teenager confessed to the killing and told authorities where the murder weapon could be found. However, it turned out that the boy had been a patient at the Western State Hospital on the day of the murder. The case has gone ice cold since then. The most recent notes on the file are from 1966. It's entirely possible that Norton Gregory's murderer is already dead. Next, we have 18-year-old James Adamski. He never came home from a Halloween party in 1982. He was a resident of a small town in upstate New York, and his family last saw him when they said goodbye on the evening of October the 30th. The costumed high school senior went to a party at a bar in a nearby town. Guests needed only to pay an entry fee to drink all they wanted, and James was reported to drink quite a bit. Witnesses would later report that at one point during the party, 
James was seen arguing. Early the next morning, James set off for home, roughly two miles away. For part of that journey, he walked with a girl, but they split at an intersection, and James pushed on alone. At that point, it was 3.30 a.m., and James wasn't seen again. His parents, however, knew something was amiss when they didn't hear from their son the next morning. Several weeks of searching proved fruitless, and people were at a loss to explain James's disappearance. He wasn't known for getting into trouble, and no one could think of anyone who might have considered him an enemy. On December the 26th, two hunters found a body in a shallow grave. It was James, still wearing his Halloween costume. He'd been buried under twigs and leaves around four miles from where he was last seen. Despite the time that had passed, investigators were able to determine the cause of death, blunt force trauma. James had been struck repeatedly in the forehead with an unknown blunt instrument. Hundreds of people were questioned during the ensuing investigation, but no arrests were ever made. Detectives concluded that the argument James had been in at the party wasn't related to his death. The scene of his burial yielded little information about who may have killed him. It is believed that during his walk, James, still drunk, was picked up by someone in a vehicle. Whether this person was someone James knew or a stranger with a desire to murder a hitchhiker is harder to say. Efforts to solve the case have continued more than 30 years later. In 2016, James's costume was sent to a lab for DNA analysis. In 2017, an $11,000 reward was offered for any information that would lead to an arrest for his murder. Either way, the case remains cold all the same. Next, we have the case of Roberta Miller. Someone sent Roberta Miller to an early grave in 2010. She was 54 years old and had just moved in her home in Guilford, New Hampshire. This came in the aftermath of a bitter divorce from her ex-husband, Gary Miller. Roberta lived with her dog, Scout, and was taking online classes, ready to move on with her life. On Halloween night, however, someone came to Roberta's house. She seemingly just let this person in, being that there were no signs of forced entry. Roberta's apparent guest then shot both her and her dog multiple times. The killing blow was a gunshot blast to Roberta's head, and the bodies were found in the kitchen. Roberta's ex-husband seemed a likely suspect. Money had been an issue during their divorce. Not long before the murder, Gary Miller filed a motion for contempt against Roberta. Per the settlement agreement, she was to pay off half of the income tax liability from the previous year. According to court records, Roberta said that she didn't have the money to do so. Strangely, on October the 29th, two days before her murder, a home in Maine owned by Gary was burned down in what was later determined to be arson. Despite close scrutiny by police early on in the investigation, Gary was never charged with her murder. According to their daughter, Roberta's death left Gary quite distraught. Also, $26,000 in cash in Roberta's home was not taken by her killer. In 2015, her mother paid for a billboard to be put up. 
promising a $53,000 reward for any information that leads to a conviction. And to this day, no one has stepped up to take it. Next, we have 16-year-old Teresa Vanagast. Teresa was last seen walking at around 11 p.m. on October the 31st, 2006 in Dixon, Texas. On November the 3rd, her body was found in a disused soccer field laying face down in a puddle. The teenage girl had been raped and strangled. According to her family, Teresa was murdered with her own belt. The killer had felt the need to also cut her long hair short. Not long beforehand, Teresa's 15-year-old friend, Kimberly Ramsey, had gone missing. She was found alive, however, not long after Teresa was murdered, and the person she was with was charged with harboring a runaway. However, it was ultimately determined that her disappearance had nothing to do with the murder. It is worth noting that Teresa's case had been linked to an area known as the Texas Killing Fields, a stretch of land in which around 30 murder victims had been found since the 1970s, primarily girls and young women. As of 2018, Teresa's case was still considered open, but detectives admitted that they were very short on clues. Many leads had been followed, and 45 people had been questioned about the murder, but no suspects had been named. Neither investigators nor Teresa's family have any intention on giving up the search for her killer. Next, we have the murder of Catherine Armstrong. In 1963, Catherine Lillian Armstrong was a 70-year-old woman living in Newcastle, England. The devout Methodist had made plans to attend a meeting of her church's choir, with which she sang on a regular basis at 7.30 on the night of October 31st. While she was seen very much alive and well at about an hour beforehand, she didn't show up at the meeting. The next morning, Catherine's cousin, Ada Ridley, came to visit and was surprised to see that Catherine's curtains were still closed. There was no answer at the door, so Ada called the police. They received no answer either, and the sergeant entered the home and found that Catherine had been savagely murdered. She was stabbed 28 times in the head and face. A nylon stocking had been tied around her neck. Although there were no signs of forced entry, defense wounds on her hands indicated that Catherine had fought back against her attacker. The investigation into Catherine's murder would be the largest the area had ever seen at that time. Leave was canceled for Newcastle's police force, and those officers already on leave were called back to work. Mere hours after the body was found, Scotland Yard was called for assistance. The area was intensely searched for the murder weapon, to no avail. A month later, 50 detectives were working 18 hours a day to solve the murder. By the start of next year, 16,000 people had been questioned. All the same, investigators had nothing. There were plenty of ideas. Some believed that a group of teenagers had murdered Catherine. Police scoured the files of anyone recently released from prison who had been convicted of violence against older women. A man who'd been a prime suspect in the beating death 
of a 70-year-old woman was closely examined. Yet none of these avenues of the investigation led anywhere. And to this day, even though an unprecedented 16,000 people were questioned, no one knows who stabbed Catherine Armstrong to death on Halloween night in 1963. Thank you for listening to this edition of 7. Make sure you subscribe on Apple Podcasts so you never miss an episode. I am your host, K-Town, and I'll see you next time on 7. It's premiere week on the Kelly Clarkson Show, and we've got music's biggest stars all week long. Performances by John Legend, Little Big Town, Machine Gun Kelly, and Common. And appearances by Usher, Josh Groban, Queen Latifah, and more. Get ready, y'all. The Kelly Clarkson Show. All new season two. Weekdays at two on NBC4. It's premiere week on the Kelly Clarkson Show. And we've got music's biggest stars all week long. It's feeling Performances by John Legend, Little Big Town, Machine Gun Kelly, and Common. And appearances by Usher, Josh Groban, Queen Latifah, and more. Get ready, y'all. The Kelly Clarkson Show. All new season two. Weekdays at 2 on NBC4.